0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: The Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos, and Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.
2: Basically, ever since the discovery of DNA, people have fantasised about creating new species of animals um, or even improved human beings.
1: This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers debate the future of the human race and what improvements in gene editing mean for the species.
2: But it's really only in the last few years that a new gene editing technology, which you've probably heard of, CRISPR, has actually made this almost a reality.
1: So will gene editing unleash humans' potential? Or will it be another dangerous fantasy that could lead to reckless use of technology that we actually need to limit and safeguard for the human race? Should humans be the masters of the universe? To help us discuss this, we have Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick, Transhumanist and author of Nietzsche Meditations, Steve Fuller, Molecular Biologist at Yale University and Founder of Editing Nature, Natalie Koffler, And finally, science journalist and author of Superior, The Return of Race Science, Angela Saini. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. As ever, once you finish today's episode, then please do let us know what you think by tweeting us or heading over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and do check out our website at www.iitv for more podcast playlists and episodes created just for you. Back now to David Malone, who hosts this week's episode.
2: I think what we're going to start with is just, if you'd all... The basic question is, will gene editing unleash and transform humanity's potential? Would you like
0: to start? (laughs) Thank you. Quite frankly, I don't really feel that I have enough hubris to predict the answer to that. Um, So I feel like what I would rather talk about is sort of what my hopes are of how things could unfold. And they really center around who and how. And I want to start with the who. So who is going to shape these technologies? Whose vision of the future is going to steer what they're going to look like and how they're going to impact our societies? Um, When we look at the past, we see that a pretty narrow vision of the world has shaped most, most of science and technology within the Western context. Um, And so I really like to think about who can we, how can we expand that vision? Who do we include within the scientific endeavors? Who do we train as scientists? Thinking about who gets to make these choices both at the regulatory and governance system level. Um, And also thinking about how we can change sort of the diversity of virtues that we uphold in science. If anyone hasn't learned this yet, it's pretty clear that science is not a purely objective undertaking. Um, it's shaped by the, you know, lived experiences and the world um, the world views of, the, of those that are performing science. And so I think there's a lot here around thinking about who, we, who and how we train our scientists and what sort of virtues we uphold so that they align with society. Thinking about virtues like compassion, altruism, care for each other and for our planet. Um, and so I think we're talking about who and we're also talking about how we're shaping those who's. So then, it co- you know, that sounds, in my mind, quite lofty and wonderful. Um, <laughs> But then it gets down to the how. So again, I think it's really about, if we're gonna think about using gene editing, this way to change the DNA of any living things, in humans, in bacteria, in plants, in animals, literally to potentially change the genetic makeup of most of our, of our planet, of the living things on our planet, we really need to think about how we're gonna be making these technologies and how we're gonna make decisions about them. And so it's about how do we train our scientists and in including di- increasing diversity in science It's about how can we include public engagement with regulatory processes, so we can have more diverse voices steering regulatory decisions making that goes beyond just empirical data about risk. And it's also thinking about how we can start to create more transparency within that regulatory processes so that we can understand how we can steer this appropriately. And if you have any science questions, I can.
2: (laughs) You you hear a lot of hype around things like AI, and everyone thinks AI is gonna change the world. Do you think CRISPR is as powerful technology in terms of its mm. ability to change the world, or, or less or more? I, I
0: mean. think it's more. More? Yeah. Okay. I think it's more because I think it's wow. also, um, particularly when we look at the world globally, so we look at sort of what's considered, you know, called the global south. We're seeing biotechnology and CRISPR released all over the world. And at the end of the day, AI tends to be constrained to like Western countries that are, you
3: know, have really developed scientific communities. So.
2: Okay, well, we should start worrying now then. <laughs> um, Angela.
3: Well, as a science journalist, I come to this from two perspectives. One is, uh, is the hype actually justified? So when people fear that CRISPR will lead to designer babies, for instance, is that actually possible? And um, I have to say, here, as with AI, there's a lot more hype than there is actual realistic prospect of us being able to design for the things that we imagine we're going to. be be able to design for. And the reason for that is if we've learned anything from genetics in the last couple of decades is that there are no few genes or one gene associated with most traits. You know, there are a few diseases, genetic diseases, that are associated with one gene or a couple of genes. Um, But most complex traits are associated with hundreds or thousands, including intelligence. And you cannot edit at that level. It's just impossible. because of the complexity involved genes aren't responsible for one thing even thousands of genes aren't responsible for one thing they interact very deeply so to uh, so to edit one gene you have to think about all the repercussions that will have when you're talking about hundreds or thousands it becomes you know a, a level of complexity which we are not able to deal with and we may never be able to deal with so to imagine that one day we can create for instance more intelligent babies by gene editing using crispr i think is unlikely, and many traits, psychological traits in particular, I think it's unlikely we'll ever be able to um, design for that. Disease is a different thing, there are certain genetic diseases, but then we have to remember that most of the things that kill us are not genetic diseases, they are, you know, (laughs) Lifestyle-related, they're because of diet and exercise and lots of other things. So if we want to become healthier, we could just fix that. We could just eat better and do more exercise, and we would have that utopia already. The fact that we don't do that just shows how much we're so desperate for a technological fix to things that are within our own control, in a way. Um, And the second question is, why? Why do we care so much about... Um, and this is what Natalie's work really speaks to, is why do we care so much about editing ourselves? What, I mean, CRISPR, what it really represents to us is this fulfilment of a dream that we have had for more than 100 years, really a eugenic dream, that we could create perf- perfect humans. And we haven't really, in our heads, we have... Um, ideas about what perfection is, but we have to remember those ideas of perfection are socially constructed, and they change. So, for example, in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties, disability was seen as completely unacceptable. People were sterilized in their masses. You know, thousands of people were sterilized all over the world because they were seen as mentally retarded or you know disabled in a way that was completely unacceptable to to society. And now we know better. We value life in a different way. We value individual individuality in a different way, and and for me, we need to think about what do we mean by perfection and why we care about it so much. Me personally, I have a six-year-old, and I do would not want him to be airbrushed before he was born. I want him with his flaws and his complexities and whatever issues and problems he's going to have, because that's what makes us human. I don't want us all to be the same, um, whatever version of perfection we imagine that to be. So. Yeah, those are the two things that
2: I think. About. Thank you. Steve, you've written a whole book on it.
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that I generally agree with the, uh, the sentiment, uh, uh, you know, especially of Angela uh, in, in the last comment, that there is a kind of unpredictability that's ultimately involved with gene editing. And in that respect, it's no different than all the other techniques that have been used throughout the ages you know, both what we would call genetic or otherwise, to somehow channel the way in which reproduction takes place in terms of how you choose mates and stuff like that. And in all these cases, there are unintended consequences, and I think Angela was referring to this very clearly in terms of, you know, editing one gene has knock-on effects on what happens in all the other genes, and so it's not at all clear that you're going to get quite the result that you want, except perhaps in certain kind of physical areas, right, where the gene's really code on to something that's very physical. But if we're talking about the sort of things that normally animate people who are interested in gene editing, such as you know more intelligence and all this kind of stuff, it's a very dodgy game. The other thing that I would uh, add to that is that this is that unlike eugenics in, in the early 20th century, this is not something that is primarily being, Promoted by states right because I think the you know, the fear about eugenics back in the early 20th century was largely because it was seemed to be State-driven and you'd have this kind of uniform population that would be dictated from above blah 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 I think the problem now is that we live in a liberal world where where there's discretion Okay, where people in a sense? um, you know, as they find out about this kind of technology and they have access to it in terms of, you know, their ability to pay for it or however much it costs, that they can take the various chances, as it were, in editing this or that gene because they think their offspring will be this or that way. Um, And here I think there is, you know, and I think that's inevitable. So the point is, at a certain kind of level, um, you know, the horse is already out of the barn, and so the question then is what kind of regulatory mechanism is going to be relevant for governing it, especially keeping in mind that there are going to be a lot of unintended consequences in terms of the sorts of offspring that are brought into existence through the gene editing. And so that's where I think the, the, the discussion ought to begin. Thank you. Um, well, you raise the point about that it's,
2: it's not going to be necessarily a, something that some nutty government says right we should have everyone with blue eyes yeah i don't think that's going to happen i think that's not going to happen but we might get the crisper version of google who says we can give your kid the edge yeah yeah should we allow that should it be allowed should 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 we think ooh i'd like my ch- child to be clever or more musical well, or
0: i think it's a really difficult it's a really it's a difficult thing to navigate because it's Every parent is trying to give their children the most that they, generally, trying to give their children the most that they can. I mean, they spend huge amounts of money on tutoring, they spend huge amounts of money on athletic programs, music lessons to try and give them all these traits. And so I can have have understanding of parents who might be wanting to think about those things because it's just sort of the next level of, of setting up your future offspring to be as prepared for the world as possible. I think what's scary about it is that what we think is right and good is, is influenced by our culture and our society which as we know is really inequitable in a lot of ways still. And so, and so I think there needs to be a lot of ways that we can self reflect on that and understand again how we feel about disability like you were bringing up. I mean I, I, I think there's something horribly terrifying about the idea of editing out deafness or down syndrome or things that 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 i just think add a lot of beauty and 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 diversity to our world and it's a really interesting conversation you and what about what about deaf parents that would like to edit their child to be deaf you know
4: yeah i mean you're raising very valid points and i think at the end of the day the question is going to be where the decision point is on this right because you're you're so far describing a world in which Parents will have the individual discretion to do this, and then we're sort of hoping—sorry,
0: so, some parents will.
4: No, exactly. Let's be, okay, Let's be there's clear that. About that no, 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 no. Yeah, and yeah. and that's part of the point I want to yeah. raise, namely, yeah. you know, say so again, everyone hates eugenics, but the one thing that <laughs> eugenics had going for it was it was state control. So in other words, there was some sense in which you had a kind of uniform policy across the society, and then you could start the society as a whole could make decisions about the extent to which we want to allow, you know, parents to allow deaf kids to be born, et cetera, et cetera, and that would be kind of, you know, something that everyone in the society would be on board with. So in other words, you could have a state-based version that actually would allow for pluralism, okay, of the sort that I think you're trying to allow here. But the point is, unless it's taken centrally, We're going to end up in a situation where people are kind of all over the place, and then the usual forms of free of the free market and the rest of it will just take over.
3: The question is, where does a state get its ideas of perfection from? Mm -hmm. It It doesn't have to be perfection. Sorry. It's not. (laughs) Say hang on. Sorry. Sorry.
4: sorry. Perfection (laughs) is 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 a loaded word in this context. (laughs) Sorry.
3: Um, we have to ask where these ideas of perfection come from. And every age and every society has its own ideas about what it considers in people desirable and undesirable. It wasn't that long ago that people considered homosexuality such a problem that if we could identify a gay gene, they would screen their children for it. And now we find that abhorrent, rightly abhorrent. But I, you know, where do we draw that line? People say to me, I have had someone say to me, of an older generation i should say you know how would you feel if you had if your son was gay um, you know would wouldn't you rather he was not gay and the slippery slope of that is well what else would you rather not have in your children because it would make their lives harder me being brown makes my life harder would i want to edit that out knowing the society that i live in of course not but these ideas about what is desirable and undesirable what will make your life easier For your children and not easier for your children, we have to think very carefully about. And the reason why I said before that I would not want to edit my son or airbrush my son before he was born is because I'm a North London mum, and I understand fully what you're saying. We want the best for our children. We give them every opportunity in life. But the question is, what are we shooting for here? And what we're shooting for is society's idea of what success is. Success is having a great job, doing really well at school, earning loads of money well, what if our our idea of success is whatever kind of child we have and whatever their talents, they are happy with what they have and living the life that they have and, you know, content in whatever skills and capacities that they have and they enjoy them. I mean, that is the happiness I want for my son and the success I would like for my son.
4: Look, I agree with you, but I think at the end of the day, this is fine words, but the question is going to be where the decision point is taken. And so far, the way you've been talking is as if you're going to leave it to individuals to hopefully, in some kind of ethical framework coming from somewhere, will make the right kinds of decisions. And the reason why I bring the state in has nothing to do with perfectionism or anything like that, but there should be some kind of uniform policy within which we can tolerate, you know, we can explicitly say we tolerate and perhaps even encourage a certain variety of options, okay? I, this is what I'm talking about, because at the moment, this, the state is not involved at that level to actually, you know, articulate this, and you're just hoping the market allows it.
3: I'm not hoping anything of the kind. Steve. For one thing, I don't think we'll be able to edit in the way that you imagine we'll be able to edit. And um, secondly, no. just because the state is not involved, that doesn't mean there are pressures on people that are driven by the way society and culture works.
4: But the I, state ought to well, take I, responsibility. I, I, well, I'm
0: kind of confused a little about why you're saying the state isn't involved at this point. Because, I mean, the reality of it now is that it's been pretty much agreed upon from regulatory levels in both the U.S. as well as the U.K. and other and the EU, that it's Unacceptable to make gene edits that would be considered enhancement.
4: Right. That and they should
0: really
3: that they should be. But focused... that's
4: going to be overturned. I mean, isn't that the premise of this whole discussion that that kind of Why? idea is going to be overturned? We
3: don't what? know that. Well, we don't know that because it, because of <laughs> well,
4: China, be, basically.
0: Well, no, but to be clear, too, it's and then just so we have this that we are all aware of this differentiation. It, there's therapeutic ideas around correcting but things like. A... Ah, ah, ah. Collecting
4: like... That's a bullshit distinction. That's a bullshit but, but distinction. Let make the distinction, Sorry. and then you can tell yeah, yeah.
2: For... One step at a time, Steve. <laughs> Go ahead, please.
0: <laughs> I'm just telling... So we're all on the same page. You know, these ideas of using gene editing, correct, say, sickle cell disease or inheritable diseases. And then there's the idea of using it to then try and eventually, if even possible, because you bring up a good point that these are multi genetic dis- you know, I thought you trait. loved
4: disabilities. I mean, the point is, there's no distinction.
0: Sorry? What do I
4: do? No, that the so-called disabilities aren't really disabilities. I mean, the point is that this is a bullshit distinction. It's based on a natural conception of the person. A therapeutic idea is based on some kind of natural conception of what it's like to be healthy.
0: Well, I think if you die at like before the age of five, I think there's like a real motivation there to try and maybe not have that happen. So I don't know what your like distinction of no, morality no, uh, is
4: or what that is, but no, like no, no, so, generally I'm, that seems I'm, I'm, like... I'm sorry, therapeutic goes beyond that that's a that's a cheap shot therapeutic goes beyond i mean therapeutic presupposes a kind of natural notion of what a human being should be and enhancement is beyond that
3: no i think natalie is right the state is involved here because the state for instance there is regulation around being able to select for sex you cannot do that but there is there's also regulation around being able to abort your fetus if it has down syndrome and that is state you know the state is involved and you're against that right I am a scientist. Oh, I know you, you, you know, don't. You
2: hang I know. on. I think
3: hang it's up on. to every individual to make their choice.
2: That, okay. Can I can I ask it some? If we leave it to the individual, will that work? I mean, or should there be? Let's not talk about what is or isn't. But should there be, uh, states saying, look, you 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 can't do that. Or I, I'm imagining that. Let's say. Um, the, the CEO of, of Goldman Sachs says, you know, I've got a I've got long way in life by being aggressive. I'm doing God's work. That's a quote. <laughs> so he says, I've got the money. I'm going to give little Johnny here. He's it's going to be aggression. more aggressive. Now, if yeah. he can pay for it, and that's his choice, are you happy? Yes. Or do you well, want someone think, to be able I to say to Lloyd Blankfein, no, you can't would, do
3: that? I don't think that man would have to gene edit his kid <laughs> to make <laughs> it <him> No, no, <laughs> okay, you, go you're go
2: go 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 avoiding but you, the you're <laughs> example. You, you see what I'm saying?
3: No, I understand, so but what do this, you think? we have these conversations. I mean, Natalie is actively involved in these conversations. This is bioethics. This yes. is the interplay that we're always having. It's tough. I know, I understand. Um, but I was just asking what c- your
2: feelings should, should that not be allowed? Should someone be able to say to him, I know you can afford it and I know someone says that they'll do it yeah. for you. No is the answer.
3: Well, we already do that right okay, now do you think we it's already a good, say it. Um, yes, because that's where the regulation lies right now.
2: Um, okay. okay, so please go ahead.
3: I also think it depends on how we develop regulation, right? Okay. So when we
0: talk about the state, you know, yes, as like the status quo goes and the way the state has worked, Historically, it tends to be able to make these choices sort of from this top down approach that tends to exclude different sorts of viewpoints and different ways of thinking. If we can create different kinds of decision models within the regulatory process (laughs) that include a more diverse sort of perspective and view, then you can maybe collectively come up with what we think as a society. And of course, everyone's going to be different. I'm not some, you know. Ridiculous person thinking that consensus is always possible, but we could come up with something that is representative of what we think is right and wrong, and we do this all the time. Okay. That's how we've gotten rid of capital punishment. That's how we, I mean, there's also sorts well, some of, of us things, have. you know. Well, yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> Sorry. I grew up that, in that Canada, just shot. so you know. So that I'm was a cheap <laughs> shot. Sorry, I apologize.
4: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. (laughs) There's this kind of violent agreement lurking, I think, amongst us here that that isn't quite manifesting itself. Um, I'm I'm the kind of person who believes that the state should allow people, allow people who realize through antenatal screening that they're gonna have Down syndrome kids to allow them to come into being, okay? Uh, And and I think this but the point is you actually need the state to enable that okay, right? Uh, And and that's where I think so the issue about what disability means Right and what you know, like you were talking about the person dying at age five blah 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 (laughs) That's a That's obvious right? You don't want that but but with regard to a lot of other stuff. Yeah right that there should be an allowance that's made Right, And and, and it seems to me that this is one of the things that one needs to keep in mind. And I think the state could be in a position to actually allow this kind of tolerance level because, frankly, there's an enormous cross-cultural difference with regard to the allowance of people, you know, kids who have Down syndrome, right? In, In this society, in the National Health Service, it's seen as a kind of burden. But in Japan you know, it's not seen as a burden, right, with regard to allowing these kids to come into existence. I mean, I do think there, there are already cross-cultural differences with regard to what he's even counted as disability here. Okay.
2: Can I put the question to you that I I, I, I put to um, Angel, which is, when it's easy to talk about th- Things we're familiar with, like Down syndrome, or something that's going to kill you before the age of five. But if it, it, my example of someone who says, I'm, I, "I want to edit my kids to be more aggressive," there's
4: no guarantee it's going to work. No, I, I know, I know. Line. But, but <laughs> of no, course. no, it's, it's a serious point because they will take the risk, and we'll see the consequences. And that's the spirit in which you should take those sorts of
2: proposals. Ah, okay. So you think it's it, it, say to people, "Look, you want to." Play God with your
4: children, you go ahead. But if it goes all wrong... Yeah, and my, and my, my basic point okay. about that is that it, that the consequences should be made public. So if it's a disaster or whatever happens, everyone should know about it, right? But if people want to take that risk, fine. I,
0: so Uh-oh. I want to push back on this idea because I don't think it is an individual decision that people are making. Well,
4: this is where the state comes in. No, 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 Hold no, on, no. Steve, I don't follow. mean
0: that. I mean from a scientific standpoint. In that when, what we're talking about basically is... is editing the germline, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that those same edits then get passed on to future generations and start changing the human gene pool. And so because of that, I think there is this real impotence of for justice and collective decision making, because this isn't about just one set of parents. The state. This is about the
4: state.
0: I don't know what you're even saying when you're saying that anymore. I'm
4: confused. (laughs) No, no, but that's the state is the (laughs) locus where that happens.
0: No, I understand that. I'm just saying that.
4: (laughs) Well, I, th- I mean, it's as, as if sorry, you, you, you act <laughs> as if politics doesn't exist. No, but no, she uh, doesn't. I'm, <laughs> she I'm slightly confused engaged as well. I'm a so
2: confused. <laughs> Could Are, you, are you saying, on the one hand, you seem to be saying, look, let people decide. But then right. you're saying the state should
4: intervene. How, how do these two things the go together? The state organizes the forums in which the decision-making of the sort you're talking about will occur. So it sets oh, the boundaries.
0: are so saying the same sorts of Yes, things. exactly. That's why
4: I say we're in violent agreement. <laughs> okay. Well, Certainly but it's, it's just a word <laughs> state. I think you're providing no, no. the violence. But no, that's no, okay. no, 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 no. The problem is that people who get caught. No, because of the history of eugenics, which Angela referred to. Well,
0: let's also call eugenics white supremacy. Like, let's call it whatever. No, it isn't.
4: That's the point. We're engaging in it with gene editing. That is eugenics. It's eugenics 2.0. And and the thing is, we need the state once again involved, but in the way you're talking about, and we should own it. So you don't want it to be left just to the marketplace, you exactly. The, the well, no one, I think,
0: wants that. Well, I'm
2: no, sh- no, I'm sure there's some Nasser, but he's not here. So, well, there, no, I take that back. There are people, and you know that there are. Yeah,
3: people, yeah, none of us. Who want think that.
2: that the libertarians <laughs> who think it should just be what you want to do, and if someone can offer you the service, you should be able to take it. Yes, yes.
0: So the other thing that to understand that too is like the service doesn't also just fall out of fall out of the atmosphere, right? Mm. The service is also based on like huge. Huge amounts of quantity of genetic sequences, yes. like all these different things that people have to be providing in order for companies to even do that. And so again, this isn't like there are all these different levels that would be have to take place for a certain company to be able to provide hyper which like still is ridiculous. Yeah. Idea, um, for that to happen.
4: Well, can I just say something about the, the I have a what's you're happening? Sorry, no, no, because there so. are actually public-private partnerships that are trying to find out yeah. what the secret to high, uh, high intelligence is from a genetic standpoint. Yeah. The Beijing Genomic, Genomics Institute, for example, is actually trying to get all the yeah. genomes of people who have They're over trying, a, 160...
3: they trying, They're trying. They're, They're trying, the exactly.
0: But, They're but, also but, doing yeah. it in the U.S.
4: Well, right? can yes. we go to, people have
3: been trying for 100 like years. years can it? can, it we, can we
2: look at the other end? I mean, I interviewed a, uh, Orin, Senator Orrin Hatch, a mm. long oh time ago. Oh, my going, God, yeah. Mormon. But that's the least of his problems. <laughs> yeah. um, and and he, he, he wanted to identify kids when they were five or six who he said, you know, that they have attention deficit disorder and these are the people who are going to become violent and we should medicate them early. Mm. Now, I haven't interviewed him recently, but I would be willing to bet you my house that he's now thinking, ah, we could gene edit some of yes. these, these poor yes. families who keep yes. producing these kids. So yes. you could see the government saying that's acceptable. No. Because the people in government might it think have it's to be. acceptable. It doesn't have to go that does
4: way. It. But there's a danger to that as well, isn't oh. it? Look, but this is—but you actually have to make it a oh. public discussion, okay?
3: <laughs> who Sorry, needs to, who
2: needs to be in that discussion <laughs> you think, for, In order for is, that not to get derailed we completely. We forget
3: that we have been having these discussions for a really long time, even before the prospect of gene editing came around. Um, these are historic uh, debates that people have been having. Um, I mean, what, for example, what you just said, this idea that, number one, is it possible? Mm. Would it ever be possible to edit someone's genome to make them more intelligent? Um, scientists right now say no, that it's not even possible because of sure. the complexity involved. Um, secondly, that when you use the word poor people, you're assuming poor people are more likely to be stupid than rich people. Well, no, That's exactly Hatch what... assumes this. <laughs> well, okay, he assumes this. And this, again, goes back to eugenics. This was this assumption that... You know, poor people are the repository of all of society's problems, and they are the ones that we have to deal with, including this high instance of mental feebleness. We forget, actually, that Genes do not define everything that we are. And even though there are hereditarians now who say, or geneticists who say, that um, intelligence is 50% heritable, a figure I have to say that has come down from 70% a couple of decades ago, (laughs) but let's say 50%, you know that heritability figure goes down to zero for the lowest socioeconomic class. So actually, your genes don't matter that much when you're poor. What matters is nutrition and education. (laughs) And if we are really concerned about the poor, and if we're really concerned about the health of society, then improve education, improve nutrition, and give everybody the same life chances. If we're really that bothered, stop looking at gene editing and look at these other
1: things. Um,
2: Well, we could get stuck (laughs) on that topic for a long time, so Mm -hmm. we'll move on. it, when we talk about gene editing, it's not just gene editing us. I mean, people want to gene edit mosquitoes. And they want to gene edit plants. So the, is the technology, where it is applicable, going to lead to a better world, and then later, you know, much improved human beings? Or do you think that the, the chances are that it's going to be much more dystopian than it's going to be utopian? Go on, Steve. You want me to go for it? Yeah, okay. go on. To save you interrupting later. um,
3: i I think when we're talking
4: when we're we're talking about uh, physical things then the gene editing of you know mosquitoes and all the rest of it makes kind of sense but i don't think in in so far as you know because one of the things that i think was very you know that's been pointed out about gene editing is that the complexity of the genes, the way they relate to each other, that the way in which the genes operate is most directly on things that are physically relevant. And so if you're talking about a mosquito injecting something into a human, blah, 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 if you can stop the mosquitoes from doing that, that seems like something that within the realm of gene editing is easy to do, as opposed to changing people's intelligence and stuff like that, okay? So I do think that kind of thing is possible, um, but... I, I, I really don't think that, I mean, I never thought that gene editing was the solution to all the world's problems. That's good. No, and, and I don't think, I, you know, no, no one really does. But I do think that, that there is a sense in which, regardless of all the pious words we say about education and all the things that Angela was saying, gene editing is on the table, and there's a sense in which how we actually regulate it. So let's not, because there's a sense in which I think there's a lot of, uh, as we say in the United States, waving a flag and kissing a baby about you know all the other things we should be doing instead of gene editing yes you're absolutely right we should be doing all these other wonderful things but the point is gene editing is here it's not going away and the issue is going to be how we regulate in a way that can maximize the benefit to the people involved and that's why i mentioned the state and i think both of you uh, who have been talking about this are implying the state has to be involved at least in the sense of organizing the discussion about how this is used and how one responds to the consequences of it. Okay. There is, th- there
2: is still the, 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 the question of who gets the benefit of this. Because, I mean, one of the things that people have talked about with gene editing is that it, it's another one of the technologies that people say, oh, this will allow us to put off similarity and live longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see people saying, hey, I'm a millionaire. I want to live 50 years longer than anyone else. Oh, yeah. And, and, and does that matter? If a technology... Well, it
0: depends. So I think it's... Yeah, no. I so, But I think what gets complicated is when we're talking about non-human applications... Okay, please. There's a much sort of potentially broader impact of some of these technologies, right? So you brought up this idea of if you could use CRISPR, and this is, these technologies are developed in labs already to use CRISPR to create um, genetically engineered mosquitoes in order to be released into the wild and suppress the mosquito species that transmits malaria. Um, Malaria causes almost 500,000 deaths every year, 70% of which are children. Um, It happens to normally impact the most poor of our our world. And so there are a lot of people within these communities impacted by this disease that want this technology to be continued to be developed. And so I think actually on both sides of this black, you know, when this argument becomes black or white, like go full forest, we need to keep this technology going and blah, 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 or we shouldn't even be touching this technology, it's it's too risky, it's not right. Like, both of those are positions of privilege, you know? So saying not to use that because you're in in a country where your children aren't dying from malaria and you have the choice to how you're going to find your food and how you're going to live a really high quality of life, like, that's a position of privilege to say that that technology shouldn't be used. It's also a position of privilege to say the technology should go straight ahead and everything's going to be great. Because so far, technology has represented your, your, your status quo and your worldview. It's working for you. So why wouldn't you be wary of technology? And so I think that's sort of what we have to remember is that there's a lot of privilege being enacted in these sorts of discussions and how important it is that this is so nuanced and we really think about you know, the middle ground approach of, of holding both, sort of, both things at once. <laughs>
4: And that's what the state is for. Look, the bottom line is that you, you when, you're, when you're addressing an issue like this, what you want to do is try to empower people to think there are ways they can actually operate in concrete levels to influence the decision making that's being made, okay? And I don't think it's very helpful to say, oh, there's a systemic issues and all this, and it goes back long in history and it's reproducing everything that's happened in the past. It makes it look like the prospect is hopeless. Do you think the prospect is hopeless?
3: No. No, no but you, then talk in a no, way that I don't. looks promising. And you know, the problem with what you're saying, do you know when Stephen Lawrence was murdered, an investigation was done into institutional racism in the Metropolitan Police, and before that people thought there wasn't a problem, when that was recognised, that's when change started to happen. When we recognise there's a systemic issue here, an institutional issue, it's not just a couple of police officers, that's when change started. So what Natalie is saying is absolutely, absolutely correct. When states regulators think about this in a, in a broader way, in a more global way, thinking about different voices, it makes them
1: better. Sure,
4: I agree. And the question is what is the comparison to the Stephen Lawrence murder here? I'm not sure what you mean, Steve, sorry. Well, because this is how you begin the argument and what makes the argument persu- persuasive is that you start with a very concrete case that then leads to a kind of systemic understanding. We actually don't have that with regard to We do, we have
3: international scientific bodies. We have journals who work on this every single day. When what Mm -hmm. happened in China Mm -hmm. happened, the international scientific community, the establishment responded. Yes.
4: We'll see, we'll see. Okay, I'll take it. We already saw,
3: we already saw. Okay,
4: we'll see. Then I don't see, okay, okay, I think
2: We are completely out of time. So can I just ask you, please, to thank our Masters of the Universe here?
1: (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Steve Fuller, Natalie Koffler and Angela Saini. For more on today's topic and the future of humanity, have a listen to episode 146... An exclusive interview with anti natalist philosopher and author Patricia McCormack, and episode 147, which explores the pitfalls and potentials of transhumanism in Should We Live Forever? Thanks so much for listening. Please do make sure you subscribe, have given us a rating or review on iTunes, and of course, make sure you tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.